Okay, go for it. Hello, and welcome to Sex in the State, a newsletter about power. Today, I'm interviewing the amazing Maggie McNeil. Maggie and I have been friends for quite a long time now. Um, she is uh, a sex worker. She's been a sex worker for uh, decades now. Um, she is also a writer and thinker and speaker. Uh, her blog is The Honest Courtesan, and I couldn't recommend it uh, more highly. And she's also on Twitter, um, I believe, at Maggie McNeil. Um, Maggie underscore McNeil. Maggie underscore McNeil. And uh, yeah, uh, I just wanted to have you on to kind of talk about sex work, feminism, masculinity, all the things that I've been writing about recently. But I wanted to start out and just kind of ask you about some of the kind of frustrations that you have with quote unquote mainstream feminism. Oh goodness! Uh, how how many hours? Yeah. Do we have? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think. I mean, honestly, if you if you boil it down um, to um, to the to the really the the most important parts, the you know the most important details, I think my main problem with mainstream feminism is my main problem with mainstream anythingism, in that um, it's 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 a religion. It's, it's got a set of principles that um, you're not allowed to question to be in the club. And it's got a certain, uh, you know, catechism. It has a certain canon of writers that you're expected to quote from. And, and, and even if your thoughts are in similar veins to some of these folks, if you don't use the same language and the same um, you know, uh, the same shibboleths as everybody else that then you're out, then you're not, then you're not a feminist. You're not a good, you know, just, you just can't question, uh, certain things and any movement in which you are not allowed to question is not a movement for me. So that's, that's the main problem I have with mainstream feminism. I mean, obviously there are dissident feminisms and I have no problem with those, but I'm, you know, that, that monolith, um, and and you know, and to a subs and to a lesser extent, um, the problem I have with it, of course, is that to a large degree, the the mainstream feminism has a very low opinion of women. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I can't. I've never. I mean, I remember saying that since practically since high school. It's like for something called feminism, it has a really low opinion of women. Women's agency and women's resilience, and women's power, and women's everything, you know? Yeah, I, and I think these are definitely um, reasonable critiques. I'm wondering if you see a relevant difference, especially as far as the um, not being open to critique between feminism and libertarianism, for example. Well, I mean, I think that libertarianism, again, it's an ism, right? Um, and, and there are, if I have to sit through one more, um, one more lecture of the difference between deontology and, uh, and you're smiling, you know, what I mean? you know, it's like, really, I don't care. You yeah. know, I don't care. And, and the, the whole thing of, of um, libertarians is being, you know, it's so obsessed with the economic dimensions, when at this juncture, um, 
the, the, the social dimensions are so much more important, in my, in my opinion. I mean, you obviously, in other words, you know, I, I'm more concerned about all the, the, the crunching on civil rights um, that, that the establishment is doing right now, much more than the amount of money they're stealing from me. The amount of money, I mean, I don't like having being robbed, but, but I, it, I'm not being robbed anymore to any greater degree than I have been most of my life. I'm used to that. <laughs> it's the civil liberties infringements, growing civil liberties infringements uh, that, that make it to me, you know, and I think my main critique of, of mainstream libertarianism, and I don't mean the Libertarian Party, which is a totally different subject, you know, for a which different- we will path. not address. We will not address. Uh, but, I, but I mean, just the movement. It, it's, it's just, like I said, that obsession with the economics. Um, well, and I think to a large degree, the dichotomy between social issues and economic issues is a false dichotomy. Um, yes, absolutely. I think it is. And, and, and but, but, you know, um, because so many, I mean, we, we, I think we agree on this, that so many of the, the, the economic problems are caused by the social um the social issues in the first place. Right. You know, I, I'll, I'll never forget um, the Mercatus Institute, which, you know, I'm not trying to pick fights with any particular institution, yeah. but uh, they put out a ranking of uh, freedom for the states in America, you know, one to 50, which mm -hmm. is the most and least economically, or sorry, free. I don't think that they specified economically. And they didn't include access to abortion as uh, one of the criteria. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And so I'm like- Sexual freedoms. Right. Well, and it's also, there's no reality in which access to abortion isn't an economic issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. The number one reason people seek abortion is because they cannot afford to have absolutely. usually another child. Um, yeah. And the economic implications of not being able to, uh, to obtain an abortion are obviously like, probably more important than your marginal tax rate. Um, so yeah, it's just, it is, it's a huge problem, but um, yeah, I want to dig into more the, the way that feminism often condescends to women. The way I often put it is that I find a lot of mainstream feminists really infantilize women. Yes. I think obviously when it comes to sexual autonomy, whether it's our ability to consent to do sex work or our ability to navigate a consent conversation like an adult, it just seems like a lot of feminism uh, is just very, uh, yeah, like you said, it has a very low opinion of women. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's, I think getting out, getting my first degree before the end of the 80s, you know, before a lot of that stuff became mainstreamed, um, it was, you know, a lot of what's considered mainstream feminism now was considered radical feminism in the 80s. And um, I, you know, I know that myself and the other, my other peers would have been appalled at, at the, the idea that we, that our consent sexually would be questioned, you know, merely because of our sex, that, that you know, that 
oh, well, you can't possibly know he tricked you into that or he whatever. And you don't have enough strength to say no. You can't, you know, you can't be held responsible um, for that. And I, I would have been incredibly insulted by that. And I think most of my peers would have been too. You know, the idea that you, this is not to say that there isn't such a thing as a power imbalance. Of course. But to say that an adult woman, because I mean, let's, you know, you're over 18 and this is before they started raising the, everything to 21 um, was when I was there, you know, that if you're old enough to live on your own and be away at school and, and be paying your own rent, that somehow when it comes to sexual matters, you're still a child and you can be bowled over because, because of whatever, I don't know, he belongs to a frat or something. I can't even analyze it. It's so weird to me. Um, yeah, the story I like to tell is, you know, I was reading the Babe magazine interview with the woman who went on the date with Aziz Ansari. And you know, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm just thinking, you know where the door is. Like, you know where your clothes are. Like, if yeah. you don't like what's happening, say no, stand yes. up, put your clothes on and leave. And it, yeah. yeah, it just seems to me like if you're not ready to say no and stand up and leave, not to say there aren't circumstances where, you know, you're unsafe doing so or inebriated to the point where you can't, but leaving aside extenuating circumstances, part of being an adult is the ability to say yes or no and mean it and go on with your life. Um, but yeah, I, I think my, the reason that I identify as a sex positive feminist is first and foremost, I think sex is inherently morally neutral. But I think that um, what that means is that sex is not magic. And what I see yeah. in a lot of feminism is the idea that sex is magic, that somehow women can consent to cleaning toilets for money, they can consent to making lattes for money, but they can't consent to having sex for money. Yes. Or they can consent to going to a party, but they can't consent to having sex with someone at a party without, you know, six times of, you know, being asked and then them saying the magic word that's a yes. It's like, you know, women are adults, sex isn't magic. Um, it seems to be really missing from the conversation. But um, something that I also wanted to talk to you about that you've written a lot about um, is the satanic panic or I shall I say that. satanic panics um I think that it's the same panic just rebranded um over the decades no. I agree um, but yeah I'd love like just for somebody who has no idea what we're talking about you know kind of what's happening what's happened um you know why does it matter I think you want like a quick, like a quick synopsis of, of the, the history of it, like a, like a two minute capsule. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, in no, the, no, in, uh, <laughs> no sweat. In, no, I can do this. Uh, in the early eighties, um, this whole, this whole moral panic started um, around a bunch of things. I think part of it was a reaction to the, uh, to the sexual revolution of the seventies. Um, Part of it gained a lot more credence because of HIV. 
Oh, because people were afraid of the, the idea of, it seemed like to some people, to some people with traditional mindset that God was punishing us for the sexual revolution. I think a lot of women in that time, and it's, it's, I think it's tough for younger women to really understand how much guilt there was in, um, in women in those days for taking a full-time job and putting your kids in daycare. Um, nowadays, you know, that's so normal, nobody thinks about it, but there was a lot of guilt in those days. And, and there were a lot of plots in TV shows and movies and things about that sort of a thing. And so it wasn't surprising when this idea arose, this panic arose, that children were being sexually abused inside of daycare centers, which was, of course, the center of, of the satanic panic. Um, and it spread into all sorts of other things. I, I can remember um, during my two years of teaching, yes, I did actually teach in the late 80s, um, I can remember lecturing to a class to, of high schoolers talking about um, a local newsman claiming that um, Satanists had broken into his garage in order to take revenge on him for doing a story about their, their rituals. And as I said to the class, I said, because obviously they couldn't just have been trying to steal his lawnmower. <laughs> it was absurd. And the, the, the satanic panic as such didn't last a tremendous long time, 15 years maybe. Uh, it was starting to die by 94, 95. Uh, it was pretty much gone. But it didn't really go away. It stuck. And what happened was it rebranded, as you said. It, it, they changed the motive of the villains. So we still are at being asked to believe that there's these huge cabals of shadowy villains abducting women and, and engaging in, in weird and uh, exploitative sex with them and children. <clears throat> but the motive is now being cast as profit versus um, religion. And but it's the same thing otherwise. It's, it's the same panic. It's the same idea. It's the same people lurking all over to steal your children, to abduct women off the street, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And I think that's why the sex trafficking hysteria was so much more um, widespread because the satanic panic as such was a pretty much a strictly American phenomenon. Whereas of course the, the sex trafficking hysteria went worldwide. Um, and I think it's because it it seemed to have um, a more solid base in reality. A lot of people were understood from the beginning that the satanic panic was was silly. That there's no you know that there's no giant cabals of magic satanists, especially doing this the kind of stuff that they were supposedly doing. You know, uh, building networks of tunnels under daycare centers and spiriting children away into all this kind of foolishness. But even so, since at least the end of the aughts, maybe the early teens, so once the sex trafficking thing got really established, we started seeing elements of the satanic panic popping up in it from square one. I, I wrote a column, I want to say it was like in 2011, 2012, called Mumbo Jumbo, where I talked about that. The idea, all these magic ideas, the idea of the, the pimp has like magical mind control powers um, that that they can walk through walls like ninjas and and abduct women out of out of these you know guarded 
um, shelters and things like that. Uh, I mean, all sorts of things of these stories. Um, and, and the whole story uh, getting bigger and bigger and bigger with time, um, all these things. And so when, when QAnon appeared, and so we were back to the full blown satanic elements, I wasn't surprised at all. I'm like, oh, there it is. It's been under the surface. It just took a while to, to resurface again. And there it is. Um, so it's not surprising. Um, Thank you. That was that was excellent. And I think that one thing that's really interesting is that when you see moral panics throughout history, they always seem to accompany social change that yeah. people see as frightening and destabilizing. Yes. So yes. I think the widespread entry of women into the workforce in the 70s leading to the um, widespread utilization of daycare in the 80s was really scary and destabilizing for people. And um, I think that uh, the uh, kind of explosion of access to online pornography yes. and certain um, moves that we've made toward becoming a more sex positive society more recently has been, you know, super destabilizing. I think as well, the um, change in gender relations that we've seen in recent decades, you know, we've seen men um, become less educated than women on average, yes. male yes. wages are declining at the bottom half of earners. Um, you know, manufacturing and uh, uh, agriculture are becoming less, uh, you know, uh, feasible ways for men to earn a living. You're seeing this, these, these major changes in society that are frightening and destabilizing. And so people look for scapegoats. And um, I think in, in this case, you know, the daycare owners were the scapegoats in the, you know, 80s satanic panic. Um, I think the sex industry, however you want to define it, is the scapegoat in the current human trafficking moral panic. Um, sure. And I think what's particularly upsetting to me about these panics is that, you know, child sexual abuse um, and uh, abuse of women is a real problem. Um, but the vast, vast majority of it is perpetrated by family members, coaches, pastors, people who have direct contact with children and are Absolutely. in positions of power over those children. It's not strangers. No, and, and, and no, no, no. And, and something I wrote an essay once about this where I talked about this is that we, we, have these obsessive things about consent. And I remember what spurred it was a little cartoon, which is popular, and you see it on the internet a lot, about uh, teaching children consent with the idea of, well, what if you don't like hugs? You can say no to a hug. It's like, but at the same time as we're, we're promoting things like that, now race clapping, we're also telling children that it is okay for somebody to stick their fingers in your genitals and take your clothes off as long as they're they have a title and they claim they call it a search <laughs> you know or or anything like that we, we 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 tell we teach them unquestioning obedience to authority figures and then we wonder why cops teachers 
pastors are the ones committing sexual abuse. It's like, because you've taught them, they're not allowed to question these authorities. Of course, um, you know, but, but like you say, it's, 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 what is it? 90%, I think, some, oh, yeah. some very high number are, are, are people the kid already knows. They're not some random dude, like in the memes, you know, with, the, with a white van with free candy scrawled on it and spray paint. It's, it's not that, you know, it, it never has been. Uh, but people, I think, and this is the same reason I believe that, um, this is the same reason I have problems with the concept of rape culture, because I think to call it rape culture, to focus on rape, is to ignore the fact that it is part and parcel of a bigger problem the problem being we don't want to think that people we know are capable of bad. So it's not the, I because I mean, when you turn around and you say, well, people are perfectly willing to accuse strangers of rape. They just don't want the star football player accused of rape. They don't want their uncle accused of rape. So it's, it, it's those are the people that are being protected, not some random guy on the street of a different race. <laughs> oh, we can accuse him all day long. There's no rape culture there. You know, um, it's, it's, we have to, this, this, this urge to shield from consequences, uh, people that we think are important for whatever reason, whether that's because they're a family member, whether it's because they're a cop or a pastor or somebody that we, we want to believe good things about. And so we shield them from consequences while the underprivileged people, oh, they're just getting those consequences dumped right on them, you know? Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, you know, I have read that um, according to the best statistics we have, which are not perfect by any stretch, but from the FBI, I believe something like between one and 10% of uh, reported rapes are unfounded. And, but when you ask the average person, how many, what percentage of rapes, reported rapes do you believe are unfounded? The average person will say 30%. And I had not, I had connected that obviously to, you know, we don't believe women, but I hadn't connected it to that. We can't believe it about our men that, yeah when you hear a rape accusation, you're probably hearing it against somebody you know, because yeah. that's how it works. And so yeah. you're quite incentivized to believe that 30% of the rape accusations you've ever heard are false because yes. A, we don't wanna believe, you know, something so horrible about people we know. I also think that there is an extent to which we can't grapple with how much danger we're all in at all times. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Because, right, that's that whole thing of that very Pollyanna thing that you hear from, again, a lot of feminists. Oh, I should be able to walk on the street and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a Black guy should be able to drive to work without being murdered by cops. But that isn't the world we live in. So you need to address that and not sit there with your pie in the sky. We should this and we should that. I mean, you know, yeah, nobody should be living in poverty in the richest country in the world. 
<laughs> but here we are. Um, so it, it just seems a bit Pollyanna to me, you know, to, to ignore the fact that, well, it's, it's what, it's what the, 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 the women of color are calling white feminism. It's this idea, it's a kind of a feminism that comes out of a sheltered place, a place where, you know, daddy and, and your, your wealthy, you know, your expensive school and all that, and they're all taking care of you and they never let anything bad happen to you. And so you, you don't, you know, you wanna believe that this kind of world is the norm and that bad things happening is not the norm and, but it's, of course, it's not the case. It's just that you've been well, shit. I, I totally agree with you that, you know, the critiques of white femini feminism are really important. And I think they hit on something very real. And I think it is this being insulated from, um, you know, the realities faced by people who have less privilege. I think it, ironically though, these people who have the most privilege are often the most afraid. Like they're the ones going on and on about how, you know, I have to, you know, have a thing of mace with me everywhere I go. And, you know, everybody's trying to rape me and men are trying to kidnap me in bands. And it's like, no, none, none of that's true. Uh, I mean, it, any, anything is possible, but it's extremely unlikely. Um, but I think that where their privilege really comes into play and distorts their view was A, like what kind of threats they're really under. It's, it's not strangers, it's people you know. But B, it's things like, you know, carceral feminism, where it's like, okay, well, the answer to me feeling afraid is just to lock everyone up. Yes, yes. To lock people up who are different from me. Right, right. You, you make know, me uncomfortable. And, and for, some, for some very extreme feminists, of course, that different from me is men. Um, but for, I think for most, it is men of a different color, men of a different nationality, men of a different, uh, you know, who speak a different language, men of a different religion, men of, a, you know what I'm saying? Um, right. I, I think that, you know, they, they, um, they don't want their own men to be the ones being considered, uh, whatever men they consider their own, whatever, whatever that us group, wherever that us group is drawn, you know. Um, yeah. But I think your, your point was a really good one there, is that um, when you live with danger, when you have a difficult life, when, you, when you're in the street, so to speak, um, you develop, you have to develop a realistic sense of danger so that you're not constantly just marinating in cortisol. You, if you were... You know what I'm saying? If you've been a sex worker, like I have for as long as I have, and I was afraid of every single man I saw, I, I, how could I have ever survived? And the, you, you can't, you develop it. You have to develop a realistic sense of, of what's scary and what's not scary. Um, and people who have never been in danger, really, they don't know what danger looks like. And so they think danger looks like a white van. You know, danger looks like internet porn. Danger looks like other women living in a different way than you do. Um, you know, that's what danger looks like to them. You know, 
danger looks like not danger looks like not keeping your uh, your kid and by kid I mean anybody under 25 uh, imprisoned essentially in your house you know uh, it's that's what danger looks like when you don't know what danger looks like <laughs> well and when you are taught what to fear mostly through media yes right I mean yes. I remember when I was really young, I've read a lot of news and my dad and I were talking and I was talking about murder rates for whatever reason. And he was like, what do you think the murder rate is? And I don't know what I said, but I told him, he was like, he laughed. He was like, no, it's like way lower than that. It's, it's actually quite rare to get murdered in the United States. <laughs> and I was like, well, I didn't know because every day on the news, somebody was getting murdered, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, and things... I, the 24-hour news cycle. The 24-hour right. news cycle has not helped us, you know, because no. it used to be only heard about, you only heard about murders that happened in your city. And it was on the local news. And, and so you got a sense of, oh, okay, that's how common. But now you, and a lot of, I was complaining about this on Twitter recently. Um, you actually even see that a lot of online news sources don't put the state they're happening in. Yeah. They'll have the name of the town or they'll have the neighborhood. And sometimes, you know, for my blog, when I do the news, I have to actually go digging around to figure out where in the world this is supposed to have happened because it's not obvious. It's not, there's no, you know, city and state. There's no, I mean, a lot of times I even have to go down like to the bottom of the page and look and hit the about us column and find out what's your What's your office's mailing address? <laughs> you know, that's the only way I know what state you're in. Uh, and when you have that situation, and that is the norm, well, of course, people are going to be afraid. They don't know, they can't localize where this rape or this murder or this shooting or this whatever occurred. Right. Well, and again, like with the satanic panic, you had a lot of reporters just credulously uh, reporting that, you know, Satanists were at work, even though looking back, there was absolutely no credible evidence of any None. instances of ritualistic, satanic, None. sexual abuse of children. Um, but it was reported as fact. And now with the human trafficking moral panic, we're seeing reporters reporting as fact, human trafficking things, that there is no evidence there is any human trafficking at play that yes. in Every case uh, I've looked into, upon further investigation, we have adult consenting sex workers, or we don't even have that. It's just cops doing stings, pretending to be sex workers or pretending to be clients. Yes. So um, it's just really unfortunate that the media is so ready to you know, report on these stories without doing any kind of fact-checking, any kind of verification. And it, again, it causes people, especially people insulated from real danger, as you said, to be afraid of things that aren't real, that aren't, aren't what you need to be afraid of. You know, the vast majority of human trafficking cases um, turn out to be domestic violence, um, of course. you know. Absolutely. So. Domestic violence. And, 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 you know, that's the, I mean, I, I have, I have a whole tag on my blog talking about that call, I call it the face of trafficking. And where I point out that 
even the real honest to goodness cases of real honest to goodness trafficking do not look like the myths. There's no vans, there's no kidnapping. No, there's no kidnapping. And it's not even, you know, one of my little pet peeves, it it may seem nitpicky, but it's not, is you'll see things like um, statements like, oh, they think that the pimp is their boyfriend. It's like, very often, usually even, the pimp is their boyfriend. He's just an abusive boyfriend. Uh, but what you're doing is, how can you expect to, to have a, a, a conversation with a woman when you're telling her, when you're gaslighting her, you're telling her that her boyfriend is not her boyfriend, when she knows he's her boyfriend. You're, you're worse than gaslighting, you're infantilizing her. You're saying both, you yes. can't tell the difference between a boyfriend and something else. And a yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and that's so fascinating. Most are not going to listen. Why, why would they listen? Why would they listen to that? I didn't, when I was a teenager, I didn't listen to people who infantilized me, you know? Well, if you had other options, you wouldn't be with the domestic violator, right? Like yeah. this is not an, an issue of, we need to have a conversation. This is an issue of, they need better options, right? These are systemic issues. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, <laughs> I'm about out of time. Um, thank you so much. This is always wonderful to see you and catch up and hear from you. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Again, oh, catch her on. Thank you. Um, catch her on the Honest Courtesan. Um, catch her on Twitter at Maggie underscore McNeil. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Maggie. You're very welcome, Kathy. Bye bye. Talk to you soon. <laughs>